Father in heaven, uh, as we now come to your word, I pray for me and for us that you would take away any distractions, any resistance, any opposition that might exist in our hearing of this word. And Father, that, uh, um, that it would dig deep in us, it would be planted in good soil, the very soil of the presence of Christ in us. And Father, that it would grow into great fruit. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Acts and chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, please, and verse 8. I actually think I have time to read all the way through chapter 8 and verse 3. It all fits together. Um, It's long. So pay attention. Acts and chapter 6, verse 8. This is the word of God, please. Hear it. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated, instigated men who said, "We have heard him speak blasphemous words against." Moses and God and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us and gazing at him all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel the high priest said Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had, not a, he had not child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could uh, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he set out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and, all, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, are you 
brothers, why, are you, why do you do wrong? I'm sorry. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and ordered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Molech and the, and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And our fathers had the tents of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with him, uh, brought it in with jo- uh, Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, this appears to be this this whole sequence that I read. I read the whole thing. Some of you got your Bible reading done for the week. Uh, But uh, I hope not. But but now you don't have to read the Old Testament. All right? You got most of it right there. But this is a very significant event in the life of the church. We know its significance because first Luke gives so much attention to it. 
I mean, there's a lot of attention to Peter and there's a lot of attention to Paul and so forth and certain things have happened in their lives. But this man, Stephen, just had come on the scene and now he gets the longest sermon in the book of Acts uh, and, and this whole scene. And so Luke finds it, must find it, very significant to include uh, a page and a half, almost two pages in my Bible, uh, about Stephen, who we know so really little about, and just is on the scene for being chosen as one to help with the widows, and then secondly to go before and preach this sermon and then be killed. He's the first martyr, obviously, so, so that raises the significance. But the real question is this. Why is it that what Stephen knew to say was such, of such importance to him that he was willing to die for it. I mean, he knew that what he was about to say would make them angry. They had already warned him way before he began to preach. And he would know of their anger. And he would know that they were charging him with blasphemy, which was a capital offense in Israel. And so, why is it then, after having been charged with blasphemy, why is it then, knowing that he could well be killed, did he go on and make this speech? Why did he preach this sermon knowing it would kill him? And why was what he said so dramatic, so significant, that these Israelites would kill him to keep this message from going forth? That's really, isn't it? the significance uh, here. Now, it fits very well, this sequence, what happened in the life of Stephen, uh, to Luke's purposes and to the purpose of the Holy Spirit as he's laying out the book of Acts. And I don't want us to miss that because that's really the ultimate point. I hope you're seeing, and we're going to do this for as many months as it takes us to get through the book of Acts because we need, I think, to have this really drilled into us. Not because... We don't know this, but just because this is what the point of Acts is, to drill into us that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just for us. It's for the whole world. And that that's our charge, and that's our call to be witnesses, wherever we find ourselves and wherever God calls us to go, that we're to be witnesses of Jesus. That's the most important thing. The most important thing about our life is not how many degrees we get. It's not how much we accumulate. It's not how how impressed people are with our lives. It isn't how much recreation we can can grab uh, before we die. It isn't all the places we could visit for, for vacations and all of that. Again, I'm not speaking against any of that. But simply this, that our purpose as we glorify God and enjoy Him, is the witness of Christ. There's no glorification of God. There's no glory to God in our lives. And there's no enjoyment of life ultimately for us unless we're witnessing that Christ is indeed all-sufficient. And that's the very point. And the encouragement to the book of Acts is that nothing can really stop us. I mean, that's the real point. And every bit of opposition that takes place, Luke is saying to us, God has overcome it. Whether it be geography, he'll get us out there. Whether it be language, he can deal with that. All right? Uh, Whether it be uh, hypocrisy in the church, he can take care of that through discipline. Whether it be sin in the church, he can take care of that through discipline. Whether it be persecution, even threatening our lives, even here, killing one of us, that still the witness can go on even through the death of a saint and then even on after that as we shall see. So that's the very point. We should be leaving every one of these Sundays going, it can work. We can do this. God has called us to be his witnesses and we will be. Nothing can really stop us no matter what hits us, whether it be be persecution, whether it be getting killed, whether it be uh, uh, whatever opposition, sin in our own lives. God will overcome it. And that should be the great hope because we should desire, we should want for the witness of Christ to go out. So if it isn't really great news, A, it could be I just did a bad job, that happens. Uh, But it could be that our heart's desire is not set on being a witness of Christ. But if our heart is set on being a witness of Christ, there can be nothing better than to hear stories of how the witness of Christ triumphed, even in the midst of great opposition. 
And there are all kinds of obstacles to this witness happening. We've mentioned them before. Some is geography. How are we going to get out there? That was a great issue for them. How is it going to get beyond Jerusalem in a day of bad transportation, in a day where, uh, like our own, where there are many languages throughout the known world? And, and we can see glimpses of how God is going to overcome all of that and say, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll take care of that as, as need be. And, and so he does. There's certainly opposition in the context of persecution because some react violently to this message. We know in our own hearts that there's opposition because of sin. That is simply the rejection of this truth. That's one of the things that we'll sort of see today. We'll see it later in, in more explicitly, but it's certainly here. And there's opposition to this gospel because of sin. But we also realize that in this case, as the apostles face getting the message out, there was, this, there was an obstacle that I can only call ethnic slash theological. Now, that may sound really strange to us, but it was really true in this particular day because it was a surprise to anyone during this moment in time, by the time we reach Acts chapter 6, that the gospel was for anybody other than for Jewish people. I mean, that was basically it. Now, Jesus had said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But it doesn't seem like it really had clicked by that point in time. And, and, and we can understand why. Because as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Covenant, you get the sense that the Israelites were truly God's people, God's special people, and, and, that, this, and, and that his blessing would be upon them. And then Jesus comes on the scene as one of them to bring salvation, as he says, to his people. And now you've got this clash. You've got all of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament, all of the laws of Moses and all of their history and all of their traditions and all of that. And now you have Jesus who claims to be the fulfillment of all of that. And then he says to his disciples, now this is for everybody. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go into all the nations. Go everywhere with this. Don't stay home with this. It isn't just something that's true of us. And so there was always a great struggle. And then you had those people who said, well, wait a minute. If that's true, then what about what we've had all these generations? Does that mean it's over? And so Stephen then comes on the scene preaching. He didn't only help with the widows, it appears, but it, it appears that he had an influence in these various synagogues because they were kind of upset with him. Uh, and the synagogues had names, like the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And whether these are, uh, are a list of various synagogues by sort of uh, Gentile ethnic group, or whether uh, they're synagogues, one synagogue with all kinds of people from everywhere in it, we, we don't quite know. But the point is that here was Stephen to go to help with this problem between these um, Israelites, really, who were from other, other places outside of Jerusalem, who had a, a Greek culture, as we talked about last Sunday, and the, the, the widows who were of a Hebraic culture. Here's Stephen to go in to help that situation. And while he was serving tables, he must have been preaching. He must have been telling them about, about Christ because people got very, very upset with him. And they made statements like he's being blasphemous uh, against Moses and God. That was kind of the general charge. And then it got more specific. In verse 13 it says, He never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple, and the law. So Moses and God got more specific. All right, well, what exactly? Well, he spoke against the temple and he spoke against the law. Speaking against the temple would be speaking against God in their mind. Speaking against the law would be speaking against Moses because he was so tied to it, the law of Moses. And then later uh, we read more particularly verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth uh, will destroy this place, that is the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now when we read that little expression that, that he's saying that Jesus said uh, that he will destroy this place, we remember that that was an accusation against Jesus. Uh, at the trial uh, of Jesus, uh, uh, it was put to him like this when he stood before uh, Caiaphas. Uh, they, uh, verse 59. Now, if, uh, you don't have to turn to this, Matthew chapter 26. Um, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. 
And though many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And not only was that an accusation against Jesus uh, at his trial, but even when he, was, when he was dying, when he was hanging on the cross, uh, people mocked him and went by him saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So you could, you could see that that little expression was a great irritant to them. To destroy the temple. How could he think about doing that? And they accused him with that. Well, again, that wasn't an accident either because Jesus had made reference to something quite like that. In John in chapter 2, and you can turn to this if you're quick. John in chapter 2, Jesus, you remember, had just cleansed the temple, just gone in and cleaned it out and said, this is to be a place of prayer. It's a place of, this is my father's house. It's to be a place of prayer and you've made it into a den of thieves. And then verse 18 of John 2. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who gave you the authority to walk into the temple and mess it up like this and to do this? Who gave you that kind of authority? And of course, we know Jesus, so we know his authority came from God. And we know that he was the very temple of God. And so he had every right to come into the temple of God as the temple of God and do whatever he wanted, whatever he thought to be right. So they said to him, Uh, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. He didn't particularly say, I will destroy this temple. But he said, you destroy. If this temple is destroyed, destroy this temple. And I will, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. So they weren't quite getting Jesus' little nuance there. Uh, Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John kind of tells us parenthetically. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus was speaking about his body, but but why did he say it in the temple? Why did he say it there? He could have said it anywhere that you're going to kill me on I'll rise in three days. In fact, he said that in other Venues. Why did he say it there, given that kind of ambiguity? Well, because that's exactly what was going to happen. Because you see, in the death of Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus, the temple was, in a sense, really destroyed. And what Stephen was preaching about that was misunderstood by them, but no doubt he was speaking those very ideas of Jesus. It was destroyed because it would no longer be needed. It was destroyed because Jesus, in him, was everything that took place in the temple. It was fulfilled in him. He was the high priest. Why did people go to the temple? They went to the temple to meet God. They went to the temple because they said, God is there. And when they went to the temple, they found there a priest who could represent them before God, who could take their case before God so that they could be accepted by God. And this priest would, would have an outward sense of holiness, an outward sense of cleansing, an outward sense of purity, saying in order to go into the presence of God, you need to be pure, you, know, you need to be cleansed. And this priest would then make sacrifice for this worshiper and say, in order to come into the presence of God, your sin must be forgiven. And so God will take this substitute and, 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 and he'll, 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 this blood of this animal and he'll take that on your behalf so that you can enter into the presence of God. Now, that would no longer be needed once Jesus came, once Jesus died, once Jesus rose because he is our very high priest. He is the one to represent us before God. Where do people go now in order to meet God? You don't go to a building. You don't come here, necessarily. You don't go to some temple anywhere. You go to Jesus, because he is the very temple of God. He is the very presence of God. And he performs everything that was performed in that Old Testament temple, except better. Uh, He, as the priest, is perfectly pure inside and out that he might represent us before God perfectly. And the sacrifice that he makes is himself. And he's made that sacrifice once for all. Therefore, we enter through him. Where do we find God? In the temple. 
And so Stephen, no doubt, was walking around saying, listen, this gospel can go everywhere. People don't have to come here. People don't have to go into the temple. They don't need to be represented by one of our priests. They don't need to have a sacrifice made because all that's been done. Because you see, this temple really is, is, is a shadow of the reality of Jesus. We speak of this often, but it's important that, that word shadow because it's a biblical word. In Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 4, we read this. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the the law. They, that is, these earthly priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And so you know what a shadow is. It isn't the reality. But it's just something that's a reflection of that reality. So if you see a shadow of a person over there, you know that there's a person somewhere standing between that shadow and the sun. And so the reality of that person is just being cast on the sidewalk. Well, the temple was just simply a shadow of the reality of Jesus. There's a sense in which in the glory of God, as it shone forth out of Jesus uh, onto the earth, it took the form of this temple and these priests and these sacrifices. That was the shadow. And then when Jesus came and did what he did, people should have been able to look at him and say, you're the reality of that. And since you're now here, we no longer need that. And no doubt Stephen was saying that. No doubt Stephen got it. And he was saying, you know, this, this can go everywhere. This is for all people. This isn't just for us. And the reason is, and, and somebody may have raised their hand and said, well, what, don't they need to come to the temple? And Stephen would go, no, 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 no. They don't need to come to the temple. You remember when Jesus died, the, the veil of the, of the separation between the holy place and the most holy place was split? Do you think that was an accident? No. That was telling us that we can go in now because Jesus was the curtain and now the curtain is open. Through him we can just go right into the most holy place. All of us in Jesus are high priest in sacrifice. And so we don't need this anymore. In fact, as John is is seeing glory... uh, uh, he, he writes this, Revelation 21, verse 22. And he, when he sees the city of God, he says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is no need for a temple. Now, for people who are not clicking with that, for Old Testament Israelites, they're thinking, this can't be. This is blasphemous. And so he's speaking against God. He's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against Moses. He's speaking against the law. Because no doubt they would say, well, surely uh, all of these people who come in need to be circumcised. That will be dealt with later in Acts chapter 15. And you get the sense that Stephen was probably saying, no, I I don't think so. They need to be baptized. It's baptism now. It isn't circumcision now. Circumcision was for us. Circumcision was old covenant. Circumcision said to us that this promise of God is for us and our seed. This promise of God is for us and those who have the faith of Abraham. It's for our seed. That's why circumcision was circumcision. I'm not going to go into all the little physical details of circumcision. But if you think about circumcision, uh, the sign and where it was... It gave reference to, it's to our seed. And no doubt if Stephen is thinking and tracking with this whole gospel, he's thinking, the seed has come. The true seed of Abraham to represent us. The true promise has come in Jesus. And it isn't just for us, it's for everyone. And now the sign is no longer circumcision, but Jesus says we're to baptize. We're to take water and we're to, to, well, Stephen didn't say this, but if he was thinking, he would have said, depending if you're Baptist or Presbyterian, you take water and you either immerse people or you sprinkle it on them. Uh, Whatever. It's a sign of cleansing. And so there you have it. And so he was in big trouble for all of that. Verse uh, 7, verse 8 of Acts 6 gives us this startling expression. Actually, verse 7. 
And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now why do you think Luke threw that in there right before this whole scene with Stephen? Well, to kind of prep us a bit. Because what's a priest to do after he believes in Jesus? A number of years ago, I don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities here, but a number of years ago, in the early 90s, it was probably 1993-ish, I went to a conference and heard a Roman Catholic, ex-Roman Catholic priest give his testimony of faith in Christ. And he was from Italy, and he was a bishop. And he said there was a day that he was, he was offering the Mass, and he was reciting verses out of Hebrews. And he came to text after text after text that said that Jesus is our sacrifice once for all. And he said at that point in time, he realized, he said, I realized I got fired. There was no need for me. I didn't need to, to say these elements were a re-sacrifice of Christ because it's done. And he says at that point in time, I lost my job. And, and that was true. For these Old Testament priests, they would have lost their job at that point in time. No need. Because Christ had done it. And they came to faith. And you see, for Stephen, this was worth dying over because this was everything. This was the door that unlocked it all. This was the door that, that, that said it's for everyone. This takes it away from being an ethnic thing to being for everyone. This is the theological foundation that says, no, this is to go to everybody. And if we don't have this, if we don't get this, then Stephen, in a sense, would be saying, we, then we're going to keep it just amongst ourselves. In order to, to know God, you'd have to come not only through Jesus, perhaps, but, but back through the temple, back through circumcision, back through the law, back through everything that Jesus has fulfilled. And there's no need for that. And that would just keep it amongst ourselves. But it's never been meant for that. And so he goes on to give his defense. And I won't go through this, which is why I read it. I hope you read it again sometime, because it's, it's a wonderful account of, of Old Testament in history with the emphasis always on a couple of things from Stephen. One is, this was never meant to be just for us. And number two is, how can, accuse, how can you accuse me of being against Moses? How can you accuse me of being against God when our people have been against God and Moses all the time? And you are too. So that's kind of the, the theme of the sermon, which is probably why I got killed in the end. Um, but his point first being uh, it was never just for us so he talks about Abraham and Abraham is always a good one to start with when you're talking with people who are, who are, are Jewish because Abraham is the great father of the faith if you will and even the apostle Paul says he's our father as well in Jesus and so he begins with Abraham but he, he, he starts with Abraham all the way back in Mesopotamia way back before God brought him into the promised land. In a sense saying, look, God existed and God manifested his presence in Mesopotamia. Not just here. He met Abraham, our father, over there. And then when he brought him into this land, even though Abraham knew him, he, Abraham never had a spot on this land. God isn't confined here. And then he goes on to Joseph. And he said, God took our people all the way into Egypt. And there he met with us. And there he blessed us because he sent Joseph there who was able to feed us during the great famine. And not only that, Joseph came in a sense to be the savior, not the redeemer savior, but to save his people from famine, to save his people from political oppression and all of that. And Joseph came and yet the patriarchs missed it. All of his brothers wanted to have him dead and kill him and get him out of the way. So we're not so great, Stephen would say. And then he goes on to Moses. And he says, you know, Moses was in Egypt. And he grew up there. Amazingly. And when he reached 40 years old, he went around to see his people, to see how they were doing. And he found them fighting among, himself, among themselves. And he says, don't do that. But then one of them raised a very important issue with Moses. Didn't yesterday you kill a Hebrew? I'm sorry, kill an Egyptian? And Moses would have to say, Yes, I did kill an Egyptian yesterday. But I killed that Egyptian because he was fighting with an Israelite. 
And so I came really to save our people and you're not seeing it. And now you're fighting amongst yourself and I'm coming to you and saying, don't do that. And now you want to reject me. And so Moses flees. He comes back. And you know the story. And then you realize when they get to Mount Sinai, what happens? They reject Moses. Moses is up with God. Takes too long. They say to Aaron, build us an image. Build us an image of God. Moses is up on the mountain getting the true revelation of God. But, but we don't want that. Give us, let us make an image of God that we make out of our own hands because we like that symbol. We want God to be like this calf. We want God to be this fertility. We want God to be this power. We want God to be like this. So make us a God like that. And in doing so, they reject God and they reject Moses. And Stephen's saying, how can you be upset with me when our people have always rejected God and rejected Moses? And then he takes him to the temple. And he says, you know, for a long time, this temple moved around. And then finally, David got the idea from God that there should be a permanent dwelling place for God. And God said, no, not you, David, but Solomon built it. So Solomon built it. Uh, But God kept reminding us that I don't live here. This isn't, this can't contain me. The earth is mine. I belong everywhere on the earth. This all is mine, not just some little apartment in Jerusalem. I live everywhere. And so we should know that. And then he sums it all up and points right at them and it says, you're just a group of stiff-necked people. You don't, you've never wanted to really follow after God's way. You're uncircumcised to the heart and they knew exactly what that meant. It meant that your hearts are cold towards God That while you carry circumcision externally, internally your hearts have never been transformed. Internally you're you're not warm towards God at all. You've rejected him completely. You resist, he said, the Holy Spirit. You've killed every prophet that's come to you and said a Messiah is coming. In fact, you even killed the Holy One, the Righteous One, the very Messiah of God. And for all of that, of course, then they killed him. So what do we make of this? And there's many, 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 many ways we could go here today. I'm sure you've heard many, many sermons on the, on the stoning of Stephen. But let me just go a couple of different places. Number one, we must realize, as I said at the outset, that this gospel isn't just for us. Stephen was willing to die for the very fact that it's for everybody. That it can't be contained in any group of people. But it really does need to go forth. And so we need continually to be praying, to be looking, to be thinking about, to be sharing in the midst of this community. To be welcoming people here, but not only that, to be going into different places. We need to be in the university. We need to be with students. We need to be with faculty and administrators and cafeteria workers and all of that at the university. We need to be in our neighborhoods. We need to be talking to people in our neighborhoods. A difficult thing to do, perhaps. We need to be known as followers of Christ. And not only known as followers of Christ, but we need to be known as people who have great hope. So when people see that hope, they inquire of us, why are you so hopeful? What's really true in your life? This isn't something that can be contained in us. And then we really, really do have to ask the question, and I don't want to be melodramatic here, but we really, really, really do need to ask the question, Is this as important to us as it was to Stephen? Would we really be willing to make people really angry at us if they knew this is what we really believed? Now, I'm not saying go out and provoke fights, and I'm not saying go out and be obnoxious with this or any of that, but I think you get my point. Are we really willing to be honest about this to the degree that we might know that somebody's feathers might get ruffled in a particular way. We're unlikely to face the exact same reaction that Stephen got, that people are going to kill us. But we know the reactions that we get. Uh, People are apathetic towards us. People marginalize us. We know the media bias that takes place uh, on television. Uh, Sometimes they ridicule Christians in movies. Even worse, sometimes they don't ridicule Christians. They actually try to, 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 to show us in a favorable light. And Jesus turns out to be something akin to a United Way volunteer. And misses the point altogether. Right? 
That, in my view, by the way, just as a little aside, is way worse than ridiculing us. I would much rather that than show Christianity to be a fellowship of nice people. Because it isn't that. The fellowship of sinners who have repented and are forgiven, who have no hope apart from Christ, who are no different than anybody else on the face of the earth, except that Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit, has visited them, changed them, and they've repented of their sin and turned to him. That's it. That's the gospel. is isn't that we're nicer than everybody else necessarily. I hope we are nice. You know what I'm saying. But what brought Stephen to that point was that he knew Christ. And he had seen his glory. Even before he looked up as he was being stoned, he saw the very glory of Christ. And that was reflected in him. An old dead guy, Thomas Watson once said we glorify Christ by becoming admirers of him we glorify Christ by becoming admirers of him the more we gaze upon him the more we see him in his glory the more we reflect him and the more we reflect him the more we make him known because people see him in us when I was a little kid uh, everybody, every kid my age had one hero, and his name was Roberto Clemente. He, he was a right fielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, sorry, it's a baseball thing. Uh, and, and when I was a kid, everybody, everybody thought he was great. And, and so if you went to a little league field in, in, in the mid-60s, every little boy who came to bat would drag his bat behind him to home plate. And when he got to home plate, he would take his bat and hold it like this, and he'd go like this. The reason every kid did that is because Roberto Clemente did that. Now, we thought it had something to do with hitting. Uh, Biographers have now told us he had a bad back. And so he had to stretch every time he did that or he hurt himself. But every little kid, I still did that. If I pick up a back, I got to stretch. It's just because we admired him, we gazed upon him, and we glorified him because we reflected him. And you get the sense that Stephen's life was, as the scripture says, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, God's wisdom, full of grace, full of faith, full of power. We need to be that. We need to gaze upon Christ. So much was Stephen a reflection of Jesus is that when he was being killed and he looked up and he saw the Lord Jesus standing to receive him, he said two things that are almost shocking to us. Number one, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That was a word of Jesus from the cross. Father, receive my spirit. And then he said something else to Jesus. He said, forgive them. And here's a man, and again, not to be overly dramatic, but here's a man by that point on his knees, not so much necessarily because he was praying, but because they were throwing stones at him. Now, I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine being killed that way. But no doubt he was on his knees probably had his head in his hands, his arms. Just think about it. I mean, how, what do you do if somebody's going to throw a stone at you? You know, and you can't get out of the way. You try to protect your head, it seems. So picture that bloodied mess. He looked to glory, and he said, forgive them. He got it. He understood it. He knew it. He understood that the temple had been fulfilled. He understood that he had a high priest. He understood that the sacrifice had been made for him. He understood that he didn't deserve any of that. He understood that the very one who was that was Jesus. And he understood that the need of these people, as is true of the need of every human being that exists, is to be forgiven their sins. Now, this wasn't a declaration that they were forgiven. Stephen didn't have the authority to do that. But it was his prayer. 
And it's so amazing. Because you may say, well, well, goodness, Stephen was killed. Wouldn't that end the testimony? No. Because at that time, a great persecution happened. And everybody but the apostles got sent all over the place. And there was this one man who seemed to be overseeing the whole execution, whose name was Saul. And if you read through the book of Romans, you'll find exactly the same theme in the book of Romans that's in Stephen's sermon, which is, the gospel is the power of God unto all who believe. And so, even if you're being stoned, or even if one of us is being stoned in whatever way, we mustn't lose heart. My suspicion is that in the midst of that circumstance, there's a Saul there who's watching, who's listening. And though you and I might get snuffed out, that one may take it even further. All because... We are able to see Christ. You remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, the apostle tells us, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is a moment for us. This is a moment to see the glory of Jesus in this bread, in this juice. This is still bread, this is still juice. Smell it, touch it, taste it. But it's here by way of Jesus' ordination, Jesus' command, Jesus' institution. He says, I want you to take this. Because this will remind you of me. This will cause you to think about me. This will cause you to to, to place your head around me. And and I'm going to be in your midst when you do this, spiritually. So I want you to take these moments and reflect upon my glory. And what do we see? We see the very temple of God. We see a priest to represent us. We see a sacrifice made that's perfect for us. Having been made, not being made now. Having been made that we may know it and receive it and walk in it. And then there's this other thing that follows that. And he said, now go be my witnesses. Don't keep this to yourself. Tell your children, tell your spouses, tell your family, tell your neighborhood, tell your work, tell your... all the way throughout the world. And I'll be with you. Don't worry. Let's pray. Father, pray for us, for me that we would be your witnesses. Grant us courage. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with the wisdom of Christ. Fill us with faith. Fill us with grace. Fill us with your power. Enable us to see Christ and to revel so in his glory that there is nothing more that we would want than for others to see it, to know it. Thank you for our brother Stephen who went before us. Who showed us how serious, how valuable, how significant this message is. May it be so for us individually as a church. May we never stray from it. Take this bread now in juice, Father, and use it in such a way that will enable us to see Jesus, to renew our faith in him, to fill us with your spirit in a way that causes us to be fully satisfied in Jesus and desire for other people to be as well. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And those who receive and depend upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And those who desire to live a life that's consistent with being a follower of Christ, a witness of Christ. If that's true of you, we invite you here. These two aisles down, these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, uh, dip it in the cup, and 
Say to yourself, I am a witness of this great Christ. Please come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, that is our heart's desire that your spirit would come and fill us in a way as with Stephen, that we would see the very glory of Christ and that we'd be filled with wisdom, filled with faith. And Father, that we would be filled with grace and filled with the very power in order to be witnesses of the truth of Christ. Enable us to enjoy all the benefits that are ours because of him that we might be able to communicate those clearly through our lives and lips. Father, we pray that especially as, as we do VBS this week, help us to do that well. And by well, I mean help us stay true to that which is in your scripture. Father, I pray that many, many kids will hear this, that your spirit would work in their lives and you would transform them. Kids that haven't heard it before. And Father, I pray that you save them. And other kids that have heard it and have come to faith, I pray that you grow them. Uh, even more in this truth. Be with our teachers. And Father, for any who come who are new, who are visitors, who are brought with other kids, uh, I pray, God, that this would be a, a seed of, of gospel for them, that you would be merciful to those kids and that truth would permeate through them and their families. Father, we pray for the kids in Romania and their leaders. Thank you for their safe travel. Thank you that everybody's finally there. Thank you that all the bags have finally gotten there. And Father, for any kids that aren't feeling well, we pray for them that you would heal them. Uh, and enable them to be uh, at work as well. Because we trust that everything that's happening is for your glory and in a way that will enable our kids and the leaders there uh, to reflect uh, Christ. Father, we're grateful for all you've done for us in him. Uh, Cause us to walk in your ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The response to our benediction is for us to sing together. Uh, the doxology, please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and